Hi, welcome to the first episode of Modus Operandi, um, where I'm going to be reading some of my favourite Flash stories that I've read over the years. Um, today we're going to start with Hard Time by Stephen J. Gold from his collection Love Like Bleeding Out with an Empty Gun in Your Hand. Hard Time. My apartment building is on a very steep slope. It's a bitch to hike up in the summertime and a bitch to make your way down in the winter. But sometimes at the time when the night is reaching its silent pinnacle, I sit out there and I can see the whole city. Every window, every light, activity. I sit out there until every light blinks out of existence and I'm left alone with just the dull glare of the streetlights and the cockroaches that always move as though they got somewhere to be and maybe they do. I think about Harry often at these times. Harry bleeding out on the kitchen floor. He fell on his own leg, awkward. The way his eyes were at the end, like empty apartment windows. Afterwards, the pistol felt too heavy in my hand, like it had suddenly gained three pounds, even though it should have been two bullets lighter. I still wear the Rolex I unclasped from his wrist. It keeps pretty good time. I wear it every day. Mikey got the gold chains from around his neck. He hawked them because he said he didn't want nothing that ever belonged to no fucking rat. Mikey said you got to puncture the lungs, otherwise when a body starts to rot it'll float to the surface. So we took turns stabbing Harry's chest. At the time it made me think about when I was in first grade of high school. I wanted to learn to play the drums, but my folks didn't have the money for that. They never had the money for much of anything. Sometimes I wonder if my life might have turned out differently if I'd learnt something. Anything. I washed Harry's blood from my hands in his kitchen sink. We mopped and bleached the floors. We wrapped Harry in plastic tarps and weighed him down with a set of dusty dumbbells I found in the garage. We put Harry in the river. That was how you took care of fucking rats, Mikey said. I didn't say nothing. I just watched Harry sink down into that twilight water. Darkness with the yellow moon all cut up on its surface. Afterwards, when we were done, we went back to the club. The place was empty when we got there. It was dark there too. Mikey switched on the light, went behind the bar and took down a bottle of rye from a shelf and poured us a couple of drinks. I said I needed to take a piss. The shitter stank bad and I tried to be quick. The surgical tape that I was using to hold the audio recorder to my inner thigh was itchy as hell and the mic was a pain in the ass. Jerome, the agent who handled me, was always bitching and telling me to get a better motherfucking quality of audio for them. Position the mic better so it didn't sound like I was taping a whore mumbling with my small cock in her mouth. That Jerome, he'd be a pretty crude piece of shit for a fed. When I went back into the bar, Mikey was drinking slowly from a shot glass and watching the news. He said the Iraqis had just invaded Kuwait, and I said I didn't even know where those countries were. I got him talking like I was supposed to. He trusted me because of what I had done to Harry. I asked him when we were going to meet those Canadians about the H, and then Mikey talked his way into a prison cell for life. When I'm watching the city lights die out slow, I think about Harry, and I wonder if Mikey ever thinks about him too the way that I do. 
He probably does. He's got nothing but time now. But I look at the apartment building the feds have hidden me away from in for the last couple of years. And I wonder which one of us is really doing the hard time. This one was originally published in Switchblade issue 4. And it's a great favourite of mine. It's called Cigarettes by Henry Brock. Cigarettes. Conrad Newmanen worked for five years as a machinist at Great Lakes Paper starting in 1983. With that union wage, he'd bought a house on Algoma Avenue with a view of Lake Superior, a red Cutlass Supreme that had only 20,000 clicks, a home theatre system with laser disc player and a pit bull complete with papers. He also had a few girlfriends that loved it when he wined and dined them. Conrad had never had much money and now that he did, he was happy to spread it around. The first layoff came in 1986. His savings vanished and he had to take out a bank loan to meet his payments. His girlfriends weren't interested in a guy who couldn't afford to take them skiing at Mount Baldy or to dinner at the brew pub, so they dumped him. During his fourth year, he was off for most of the winter, and this time the banks weren't interested in helping him out. To make ends meet, he smuggled cigarettes from the United States on a sled behind his ski dew. The next year, he barely worked after Labor Day, and was making the ski dew trip across the frozen Pigeon River twice a week, all for $200 a trip, barely enough keep his head above water. The plan was simple and never varied. He'd ride south from his uncle's place in Niebing once the sun went down. He'd meet a van two miles south of the border on a side road off of Highway 61. Two men would load his sled with several boxes and cover them with a tarp. Conrad would ride back to his uncle's, load the boxes into his cutlass, deliver them to a warehouse on Tungsten Avenue and collect his 200. On December 15th, 1988, Conrad was on his way back north, nearly at the Pigeon River, when suddenly night disappeared. He looked over his shoulder and saw something incredible. A helicopter was following him, a spotlight at its nose. A voice was saying something to him, but he couldn't make out the words through his helmet and above the motors of the Skidoo and helicopter. He gunned the accelerator and tried to get off the trail and ride through the trees where he thought they wouldn't be able to see him. All Conrad was thinking was that he didn't want to get busted for their goddamn cigarettes when he didn't even smoke. He only made it a couple of hundred metres before he got bogged down in unpacked snow. Conrad was sweating in spite of the frigid night. The helicopter was hovering a few metres above the treetops and the light was blinding. Snow was billowing due to the rotors and the huge engines were roaring. Still, the intelligible words came at him. Conrad got off of the snowmobile and ran deeper into the woods. Something knocked him forward and the snow was white against his helmet's faceplate. He couldn't move and he was very confused as to why. Slowly, the sound of the helicopter began to fade. Conrad Newmanen was famous after that. News agencies from the US and Canada were filled with stories about the laid-off mill worker shot dead by the DEA. 
They found 25 keys of cocaine in boxes in his sled, with a street value in the millions. The bank took his house and the cutlass. The power centre took his home theatre system and his pit pool was sent to the Humane Society. It was adopted by a farmer from Murillo, who had excelled at catching mice. This is At the Wawa by Jules Archer. We were drunk at the Wawa. How embarrassing, but also exhilarating. You and I, 15, pinky sworn BFFs, wrists corded with neon bracelets, black chip nail polish. Maybe we had braces. I'll never tell. Again, too embarrassing. But then you shotgunned a beer in the motor oil aisle. No one lives at the Wawa for free. You crowed. We crouched on useful knees, giggling. You played spin the vodka bottle with a Twix, a Butterfinger, my mouth. My mouth won, but you ate the Twix too. The next time, we were pregnant at the Wawa. I peed on a stick I didn't pay for. Two pink lines, and then you were proudly claiming it as yours. We raised it up as witches, dance in the field, eat its afterbirth and name it cowpoke. Later, when I crouched over a toilet bowl, letting it go, letting loose, losing it, you, next to me, released the controlled burn I had been holding in my throat. And then there was that one time, really the best time, we found a deep-fried human hand at the Wawa. It was not fresh or built to order, it was built to build bile. Once I realised what it was, not a chicken wing, I drop-kicked it across the store. After the cops came, you overstayed your welcome, watching them take notes, explaining, complaining about the lack of fingerprints. The only time I saw you without a smile was when they confiscated your cherry coke, because, you know, evidence. And then there was the time we became human bombs at the Wawa. You told me you were leaving our piddly podunk town for bright lights. I tried to understand tried to play it cool and casual because I was a community college kind of girl. But all I heard was that you were leaving for brighter lights than me. You gnawed on a red vine. Stolen, I might add. Wiggled your tan toes in your Birkenstocks and said we could have one last sleepover. I didn't want to have one last sleepover. I wanted to have all the sleepovers. I wanted to spin around you like the moon because you were mine and I was yours and then we kissed in the cereal aisle for the first time. And neither of us said anything when the cleaning crew arrived. They were sweeping the floor around us just as you linked your pinky finger to mine. The last time at the Wawa, we see each other for the first time in 600 days. And it's that sucker punch, grand slam kind of kiss. We don't even have to think about the years between us. We are the years between us. Phone calls, emails, midnight texts, two boyfriends I hated. One girlfriend you ghosted, and I love you so we never trusted until now. We crash into each other like planets. My heart hammers so hard we vibrate. Your fingers, still stained from rolling fingerprints from nail to nail, cradle the cool curve of my cheekbone. I nip at your nose, inhale your beeswax lip gloss. A truck driver cracks a big bottle of bush and gapes at us, his erection evident. We laugh lean into each other, hair swirling around us, tangled, golden, alive, 
and you say, Come to California with me. There is no Wawa there. There is only us and a Piggly Wiggly, but I think we'll be okay. I kiss your lips, and I take your hand, and I say okay. Because at the Wawa, we are always okay. This is Girth by Krista Parkinson, published at Shotgun Honey. I know, I know. He squeezed his eyes shut as his wife raged. I'm doing my best. I'll be there as soon as I can. Julie was livid, and he couldn't blame her. He wasn't exactly excited to be working his way through a list of seedy adult stores instead of being at Piglet's fifth birthday party, but they both knew what they signed up for. Detective Crone hung up and stepped from his tidy white sedan. He pulled a blue handkerchief from his back pocket as he navigated the cigarette butts and loogies. The door to the pleasure chest was light, bulletproof plastic crudely blacked out with garbage bags. Crone used the handkerchief to push it open and was greeted with the smell of silicone and an expanse of chipped yellowing linoleum, the same as in Kink Castle and Dirty Little Secrets in the shop before that. What a colossal waste of time. The captain was sick of calls from orthodontists and school board members complaining their delicate suburban housewives had been subjected to mailboxes stuffed with porn. So here he was, face to face with a rack of lube. Two gangly young men lounged behind the counter, all legs and floppy hair. Neither looked old enough to belly up to a bar. Crone strolled up and gave his spiel, expecting the shrugs he had been getting all day. What magazines were they? The blonde clerk asked. His name tag said Joey. Crone flipped through his notebook. This was ridiculous. He should be eating sickly sweet pink cake right now. He read off the first few titles. The pimply faced clerks exchanged a look. Girth, you sure? Joey croaked. What did these pricks think he was doing? Making shit up? He wasn't even convinced half of these names were real. It was like some sick joke the captain was playing on him. Well, the second clerk, a little taller and clad in a punk rock t-shirt, looked down at his high tops. Well? Crone's patience was thin. Joey filled the silence. Well, the only person who buys girth is Miss Nancy. We special order it. Yeah, punk rock confirmed without looking up. That's the one she buys for her students. Sunday afternoon... Crone was back in his sedan, listening to Radio Lab and munching charcuterie Julie had packed, when a tiny figure in a lilac shift appeared from behind the pleasure chest. The small purse hanging from her frail wrist, her short gloves and pillbox hat all matched. She reminded Crone of his grandmother. As the pensioner approached, the door opened and Punk Rock appeared playing doorman. He looked around like he thought he was secret fucking squirrel or something and found Crone's eye, nodded. Miss Nancy, Nancy Clayden, aged 92, of 618 Deerfield Place, as it turned out, looked somehow smaller sitting in the orange plastic chair, hands folded in her lap. Her tiny black Mary Jane reached nowhere near the floor. Crone followed Officer David as he slowly lumbered in, clearly uncomfortable with the situation. Finally, something the two could agree on. 
Title 18, Section 1725 states any person who knowingly deposits mailable matter in an established letterbox shall be subject to a fine. David mumbled. Miss Nancy reached for her purse. Oh, that's not a problem. How much? Crone and David exchanged a weary look and sat. Before we get to all that, Crone said, why don't you tell us about the magazines? Miss Nancy nodded. Well, what would you like to know, dear? Crone felt his mind go blank. He cleared his throat. What could there possibly be to know about a little old lady walking through upscale neighbourhoods, stuffing mailboxes with obscure pornography? How did you pick the houses? David finally asked. The ones where my students live, Miss Nancy said, as though it were plain as a table between them. What sort of students? David leaned forward. Mostly the repressed wife sort, married too young, no clue about this or that. She matched David's lean with one of her own. I'm the sex ed granny. Later, Crone would swear she winked. Seeing the headlines would serve the captain right, sending him off researching smut on Piglet's birthday. Finn.